This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight we're learning Le'ilu Nishmat, Yosef ben Tzivya, Yitzhak ber ben Eli, and Yechezkel ben Avraham. Okay, so tonight we're going on, continuation on the topic of Emunah. Tonight the focus is on the power, the, the, the strength that having Emunah uh, brings to your daily life. There is a very famous segula. Everybody loves skulot. You know, the Torah is like, okay, fine, but skulot will be like, what? The shortcut? Let's see where, what you got. So there is a skulot, the Nefesh Chaim brings down, that if somebody sees that he or she are in danger, and what they need to do in order to get out of that is they need to concentrate on the idea that God is only one, and the only power that exists is God, and there's nothing else Besides, besides him. This is a concept, this is based off a of pasuk in Devarim, chapter 4, verse 35. It's, ladat. You shall be shown, ki Hashem Elohim, that Hashem is God, and ain od milvado. There is no one else other than God. And this skula is known as ain od milvado, meaning that there is nothing else other than God. Now, let me try to explain to you what the power of this skula is. There's a Gemara in Chulim, page 7b, that there was a certain witch that went and wanted to take the earth from under the feet of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. And she wanted, why did she want to take the earth? She wanted to do black magic on this, on this stage, on this big Talmud Chacham. So she goes and she grabs this dirt under him. And what does Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa says? Take it, don't worry about it, nothing's going to happen. It's like, I'm not scared of anything. Why? Because he utilizes this, this skulai. He says, Based on the Pasuk and Devarim, there is nothing else other than him. Now, I want to just pause this story for a second, or a minute or two, to understand the level that Rabbi Hanina Bedosa had to be to be like, no, I'm not worried about it. This is, by the way, a witch. She was verified, right? She had her degree. She had her, you know, like, the, even the Gemara says that it's a witch. It's a witch. It's not like, you know, picture this nowadays, right? So, live in Brooklyn. You take the Q train to Manhattan, or the B train, whatever it is. You go into Manhattan, and you're sitting in there, minding your own business, being a good New Yorker, and suddenly you see a woman walk on with a stroller onto the train. And you look in the stroller, and there's a cat in the stroller. And you're like, okay. And then you slowly, your eyes slowly go look up, and you see that she has hair that's going this way. Um, and she's wearing a witch hat, meaning the hat that says witch on it. And she, is, she has nails that hasn't been cut since the 16th century. She has, uh, <laughs> she has a, a witch nose and a pimple growing out of that nose. That's another nose. And she is, she has carrying a broom with her. She is like, the, she has no teeth. Well, she has one tooth, but it's facing outward, right? And she's like as witchy as you can get. Like she's, the, the witch vibe is like strong with her. This is something like big, you know, like this is like, you know, obviously you stay away. And she's sitting over there talking, conversing with her cat, obviously. Black cat, did I mention that? Has to be very important. Black cat, green glow in the dark eyes. So... She's sitting over there on the train. You're sitting across for her. She's conversing with the cat, and suddenly you're trying to like avert. You're learning misilat yisharim, obviously, and uh, you don't want. And then you look up, and she's just like her eyes, are, like focused on your soul. And she, as she's looking at you, suddenly she's like, "What's that?" And she's talking to her cat, and it, and she looks back up, and she'd be like, "Yeah, she would be perfect." And then she starts doing this with her nails, and they make a musical instrumental sound. And you're getting really uncomfortable. And 
she gets up from her chair, leaves the cat stroller, walks and sits down next to you, and just does this. <laughs> and what you want to do is run as far away as possible. But you can, because it's an awkward situation, and you don't know what to do. So you just sit there, you know, heart beating a thousand times per minute, not sure what you should do. And she's just like staring at you, and after what appears to be like an eternity, she leans forward, and she plucks one of your hairs out. <laughs> then she giggles to herself, and she runs back to her seat. She takes under her cat stroller a little magical box bound in leather that's written in magic marker, potions and witchcraft. She opens it up, and she places it neatly inside. And then she closes it, and then she smiles. Now, what would you do? Would you be like, well, this woman is crazy, you know, like, I couldn't care less about my hair strand. Or would you be like, I, I want that hair strand back. You'd be like, give me back my hair. I'd be like, what, why do you care? Like, you know, she's obviously, you know, there, there's something going on upstairs, or there's nothing going on upstairs, depending on how you want to define it. There's something wrong in this situation. But what do you want to do? Like, you want nothing else than, like, just give me back my hair. Like, you know, I, 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 this is my hair. Like, I don't, who knows what she's going to do? And then she takes out another voodoo doll with, like, pins stuck in her, and she looks at you, and she looks at the doll. You're like, whatever it is, you want that piece of strand of hair down. Now, this is a hypothetical situation of somebody who is definitely not a witch, Right? She's definitely, I mean, she, she dresses the, the part, but you're not going to be nervous of her doing witchcraft and wizardry on you. Yet, you're nervous. You're like, okay, what's going to happen? Well, of course, my day is going to be bad. You know, like, of course, you know, like, you walk into the office and be like, well, how's it going? Well, I was, I was put under a magic spell, you know, this morning. You know, you're, like, you're completely discombobulated your whole day because of this situation. That's a fake witch. But now look at the, what the Gemara. The Gemara says that there was a real witch. She went to witch school. She did the real whatever college, whatever the witchcraft and wizardry school that she went to, she did, and she got her degree, and she was known as a witch. And she went, and she started collecting the dirt under Rabbi Hanina Mendoza's feet, knowing that this is the manner to do witchcraft and to do magic. And what did Rabbi Hanina Mendoza Not going to work. Why? There's nothing other than God. Do you imagine the level that someone has to be, not to be even worried about somebody that's real in witchcraft and wizardry. So, the Gemara goes on and says, I don't understand. Witchcraft has power. They have the power to rearrange you know, the spiritual forces. What ability, what, what allowed Rabbi Hanim Bedosa to be like, no, it's fine. I don't, uh, you know, what gave him the license to do that? How did he go and do that? Maybe he should be nervous about it. Maybe he should try to get back the dirt that was taken under his feet. So, the Gemara answers, the Rebbe Hanina Bedosa is different. Why? Because his merit is so great. And because his merit is so great, witchcraft has absolutely no effect on him. Says Rabbi Chaim Velazhen, in the Nefesh Chaim, and he goes and he says, what does it mean that his merit was so great? Is it referring to his mitzvot, his Torah? Says the Nefesh Chaim, no, that's not what it's referring to. What is it referring to? It's referring to that he relied in, in, in what? He relied with total faith, ain't od milvado. He relied that the witchcraft and all this magic has absolutely no effect. Only what has effect? Only God. There is nothing else in this world that has a power that matters other than God. And that is the concept of ain't od milvado. And he was constantly thinking ain't od milvado because of the merit of that he had in ain't od milvado, that there is no other power other than God. Hashem Elohim, there's only God. Because of that, the, witch, the witchcraft had absolutely no effect on him whatsoever. So, 
Rechaim Bledish goes, and he continues, and he says that a person has to implant this into his mind. He has, to be, he has to realize that he is completely or she is completely dependent on God and nothing else. And when one does this and one realizes that they're subservient only to God, then nothing else, no other force in the world has that power or the ability to affect this, this person. There is a, a story about the, the Briskarov that it, he lived during the, during the Holocaust, during World War II. And in 1940, he lived in Warsaw. And he was one time sitting in his house, and his neighbor came by, and he was holding a paper. And he goes over to the neighbor, says, is there anything interesting in the news? It's wartime. It wasn't like the rabbi was like, so, you know, what's the Hollywood goss? Is that short for gossip? I don't know. Okay. What's the Hollywood gossip? Well, the rabbi couldn't care. I don't know why I'm looking at you. I'm sorry. Um, so the, the, rab, the rabbi wasn't like, oh, you know, like, was interested in the news. He wanted to know, like, there's war right now. We have to know. We have to, we have to, we have to prepare. Do we go right? Do we go left? Do we stay? Do we leave? So the neighbor says, eh, nothing new. And the rabbi got a glimpse on the paper and he said, wait a minute. And, and he grabbed the paper and he says, it says over here that, that Russians had relinquished the control of the city of Vilna. And they, had, they handed it over to Lithuanians. He's like, this is, this is tr- tremendous news. And he was on, like, like he completely, like, he told everybody and he went and he, with his family also, he says, everybody has to go and move to Vilna. This is where it's going to be safe. This is where you have to go. So, he goes and he hires transportation to get from where he was in Warsaw to Vilna. It was three-day travel. And he, it was very dangerous. It was completely surrounded by German guards. And obviously we knew what Germans would do if they found Jews. And he decided, he, you know, the risk is worth it. He needs to go. And he goes and he starts traveling from Warsaw to Vilna. Three days, they're sitting in the back of this truck with, uh, this truck with a bunch of people covered in like a tarp. And no, nothing happens. No Germans stop them. Nothing is, everything is going completely amazing, completely great. And they get to the, the point where they have to stop. They didn't get to, they didn't get to uh, Vilna yet, but they got to the point where the rest of the journey had to be taken on foot. So they all got out and they start walking on foot. As they're walking on foot, all of a sudden German soldiers come up from them and they see, you know, the Briskorov if we can call it, looked very Jewy. Yeah, he had a Jew, he had a beard, he had peyote, he looked like a Jew. So they go and they, they surround him and says, Ah, you know, Jude, where are your weapons? And they started to, like, cause problems. And all of a sudden they noticed that the Russian soldiers were coming from the opposite directions. So they, they all of a sudden immediately just got up and they left. And the people around them said, Thank God that these Russian soldiers came. And because they didn't want to cause any problems between the Russians and the Germans, the Germans left. Says the brisk says it's not why they left. He said that for three days, he says, the Briskorov says, I knew that I'm putting my family in extreme danger traveling from, from my town to Vilna, from Warsaw to Vilna. He says, but I, what I did the entire three days is I focused on this glove, Eino Milvadov, from the Nefesh Shachayim. I constantly focused that there's nothing else other than God. And then, for three days, constantly I was doing it. And then my mind slipped for, for a short period of time. And that's exactly when the Germans came, when my mind left this skula. And what happened, as soon as I saw the Germans coming, suddenly I began working on the skula again. As soon as I started working on the skula again, the Germans left. It wasn't had to do anything with the Germans, it wasn't had to do anything with the, with the Russians, it had to do with the skula of Ein Od Milvado. And says, the Briskov says, where did I learn this skula from? I learned it from my grandfather, the Bet HaLevi. He says that in the story of the, of the Bet Levi, he goes and he says that one time somebody came over to him and he had a store that was selling contraband, things that were not allowed in that, you know, in that area. 
And the soldiers were very particular. What they did was they went in the store, in the, I guess in the store section, call it King's Highway or Avenue M or whatever it is, like the store section. They were going from store to store to store to store to see if anybody has contraband. And they went from store to store and, the, and this person saw that they were coming and he got very nervous. He ran over to Bet Alevi and he says, they're coming over to my store. I have contraband. I don't know what to do. So the Bet Alevi took him into his office and they closed the door. They were there for a half hour until the family members of the store owner came over, knocked on the door of the Bet Alibi and says that somehow, miraculously, they skipped over our store. They went to every single store and they skipped over our store. So the Bet Alibi and the store owner comes out and the, the family members go and explain, says, you know, we were watching them. And they were going one store after another store, after another store, after another store. And then they came right before you know, our family member's store. And they stopped. They had to go to lunch. So they went to lunch and they put a mark on the store so they remember when they come back where to start from. Now when they came back, they started arguing with each other. Is the marker where we left off that we didn't do it yet or is the marker where we did it yet? And the marker was on my on my family member's store. So... They were arguing until they convinced each other that no, really, we did the store already. We have to go to the next store. So they skipped that entire store and they went to the next one. So they asked the Bet Alavi. They said to the store, "Said what were you guys doing that get this major scoot inside your, you know, inside inside your office?" So the Bet Alavi answered, "says We were working and we were learning the entire time on the Nefesh Achaim's schoola. We were learning the concept of Ein Od Milvado because if you concentrate on the concept of Ein Od Milvado, nothing can happen to him. I know somebody. We'll get the questions at the end. I know somebody that." would always go and travel on a lal with overweight baggage. <laughs> that is, that, that's like asking for problems, right? If you go on another airline, okay, but you go, a lal, a lal, come on. 50 pounds is 50 pounds. But they utilized this kula every time that they would put the bags on. Look how practical it comes. They would put the bags I don't know, again, you're going to start balancing 50 pounds on your foot like they don't realize it. Come on, they're dealing with Jews. They know all the tricks. They don't see all of a sudden you're sweating when you're trying to figure out what's your date of birth. And be like, what? What do you mean my, 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 my what? My date of birth. And you're like tilting on one angle, sweat pouring down one foot, side of your face. But whatever it is, they would utilize this kula. Einod milvado, einod milvado, einod milvado. When they did it, it just went past by. Try it. I mean, don't try it. To the right weight. But this kula is tried and tested. When you utilize this kula, you have the ability to go and, and, and realize that there's nothing other than God. There's not the person that's giving you the ticket. It's, it is nobody else other than God. Enonavado is a very, very, very powerful, powerful skula. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I will. Um, because, whatever. Um, I just decided. Um, I have inscripted, actually, in a few of my jackets... Einod Milvado. Einod Milvado, I have inscripted in my, in my, it's, yeah. Einod Milvado, oh, inscripted in my, in my thing. Now, it's not because now all of a sudden this jacket has magic powers because it says Einod Milvado, but rather, when I open it and I look it up, and I think, oh, Einod Milvado, now you have to start concentrating on the, on the school of the Nefesh Chaim, Einod Milvado, there's nothing else other than God. So, what you can learn from this is start inscripting things, Einod Milvado, or just concentrate it at all times. Ein od milvado is something very, very, very powerful. You have a tremendous amount of power for it. Now, when you think about the concept that there's nothing else other than God, the, the, the thought that should come in mind is that 
there's no sense of entitlement. Like, I don't deserve, when you go and you ask God for something, or you're utilizing this skulah, you're not utilizing saying that, like, you know, God, because of this, I, oh, I've been keeping Shabbat, I've been religious, I've been keeping modesty, blah, 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 blah. No, when you ask God for something, it's, there's no sense of entitlement. Meaning that, God, you have given me everything that I don't deserve, and I thank you for everything that you have done, and I'm, please, I'm asking you for X, Y, and Z, based completely on a matnas chinam, on a, on a free gift. I don't deserve anything. When you go and you realize and you, and you put in, in, in your mind that there is no other power that could provide you anything that you want in your life other than God, that has tremendous amount of power, tremendous amount of blessing that, that only God will take care of you. Because when you put your power and, and, your, and, and your emotion, it, it really will speak about this and how to work on emunah, but when you put your power and your effort only on God, then God will take care of you. If you put your power and effort on somebody else, then God says, oh, you're putting your power and your effort on the boss? Let's see if he's going to take care of you. What is it going to be? Is it going to be me or is it going to be the boss? The way that human beings work, we put our, uh, our, our bitachon, we put our faith in something. It's got to be in something. Is it going to be in the FDA? Is it going to be in your boss? Is it going to be in your coworker? Is it going to be in your spouse? Or is it going to be on God and God alone? If it's on God and God alone, God will take care of you. That is in Odemilvado. The Ramban, Nachmanides, says that if we strengthen our trust in God's kindness and we pray, then we will certainly be rewarded and Hashem will come to our aid. Now, the question is asked, so what extent can we utilize this? Can we utilize this only for like when we're in danger? Can we utilize the power of Unab maybe only when we need it? But what about if not only when we need it, but what about for like extra things? Like let's say luxurious things. Can we have a Munam Bidakhan for luxurious things, things that we don't necessarily need? So this was a machloket that was being that 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 was between the Rashash, Rab Shmuel Strashon, and Rabbi Israel Salanter. Now they each held a different opinion. Rashash said that you cannot get something that wasn't predestined for you from God. Like if, if it was, like you, that's what you're supposed to get. Rabbi Shosan says, no, no, no. The power of emunah bitachon works that you can get whatever it is that you want. Even luxury items you can get. So they were arguing, the machlok is back and forth, the two tzadikim. What is it? Is it going to be this way or is it going to be that way? So what is the way to settle this argument? And this is only something that big tzadikim can settle in. says, let's do an experiment. So they said, fine, let's do an experiment. So the Rishash goes to Rabbi Shalom and says, listen, says, you think that you can get whatever you want with the power of Emunah B'dachon? Think that you want to get a gold watch. This is you're going back quite a few times where gold watches wasn't just produced by Casio and whatever, well, you know, Seiko, whatever, however you pronounce them. Um, so he said, fine, deal, you know, let's do it. He started concentrating. He started working on his Emunah B'dachon that he wants and he needs a gold watch. And a few minutes go, story. This is the story that is told. This is Rabbi Yisrael Salanta and the Rashash. This is not a story that you hear about like Rabbi X and Rabbi Y. This is Rabbi Yisrael Salanta and the Rashash. There's just, a few minutes go by, there's a knock on the door. And all of a sudden someone walks in and he says that I just came from Konensburg and I saw a beautiful gold watch and I thought, wow, this would be perfect for the rabbi. And he goes and he hands over a gold watch to Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. Now, if you were in this story, what would you be? You'd be like, your jaw will drop down, your tongue will roll, roll out like a red carpet, and you wouldn't know what to say. You know, like, it would be like, unbelievable. What? You have two gdolim, what do they go? They'd be like, oh, I guess you're right. You know, like, I guess it works. You know, like, that's what the Rashash goes out of Selesanta. Yeah, here it is. Here you see the power of emunah and bitachon that you're able to even to get. You're able even to get. I don't know what I just said. Um, the, even luxury items. And that's not only that, there's also like Gemara, the Gemara and 
page 67b. There was a pauper, there was a poor person who came over to Rabbi for a meal. And he begged him, you know, please, can you feed me? I'm hungry. And Rabbi says, what are you used to? By the way, if you stop the story right there, look at the, look at the, only Rabbi, you have a poor person comes knocks on your door and says, can you have some food? What is the first question he asks? What do you want to, what do you usually order from? Is it Carlos and Gabby's? Is it, you know, like, is it reserve cut? Like, what, what is it that you prefer? Like, you know, usually be like, okay, let me look in the fridge. Whatever I have, that's what you're going to get. What did Rava say? Rava said, no, no, no. He says, okay, what are you used to? He said, I'm going to give you what you're used to. So Rava says, what are you used to? What did this poor person say? He says, I'm used to fattened chicken and vintage wine. That's like a high-end reserve cut meal. Like, and he's like, Rava says, oh, really? Fat and chicken and, and, you know, vintage wine. He says, aren't you, uh, you know, nervous that you're going to become a drain to the community? You go around asking for such expensive food? So what did the poor person answer? It says the Gemara. Says, he says, it's not the community that's feeding me. It's God that's feeding me. And he quoted Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 145, verse 15. It says, All eyes are to you, hoping what? That you give them the bread when they need it. Meaning that people get their money. People get their panasa. People get their food when they need it. It's not the community that I'm looking for. It's not anybody else. I am collecting from God. God is the one that provides me for my meal, and God is the one that's going to provide me to, you know, for my meal right now. As they were discussing this, there was a knock on Rava's door. And who comes in, which by the way, is another lesson you learn from here, Rava wasn't conversing with this poor person by the doorfront. Rava, he brought, he welcomed this poor person inside his house. And who comes in now to his house all of a sudden? Rava's sister that hasn't, he hasn't seen her in 13 years. And she comes bearing gifts. What gifts do you think that she's bearing? Fat and chicken and vitin wine. And Rava goes and he says, wow, this is a sign from God. And he shares with the poor person. He says, obviously it's for you, it's in your marriage. And he shares the poor person the power, the, the, the fat and chicken and the vintage and, and the old wine. Says the Madrigas Adam. We learn from this is from this story in the Gemara. This is proof that not only that if you have a munabitachon, that God will give you all that you need, but also extra stuff like fat and chicken and vintage wine. This is here we see that bitachon works even for people that are unreasonable, <laughs> even for people that make you know demands that make absolutely no sense. Even th- that is a power of emunah and bitachon. Do you understand? People think, well, you're learning about emunah bitachon. Okay, it's going to help you in the next world. No, no, no. This is going to help you right here, right now. You have the power to get anything that you want with the power of emunah and bitachon. In fact, the midrash goes. The midrash of Delim says that Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. And it's also the, the if you look in Daniel chapter three, verse twenty-eight, it says that Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah they were saved from the Bukhanatai merit of what? Merit of their bitachon. And you go and you look at Daniel, also chapter 6, verse 24, that Daniel was saved from the lion's den, if everybody knows the story. What was he saved in what merit? In the merit of his bitachon. That was the reason that he was, that he was saved. There was a story that there was a rabbi which had four young children. And suddenly he started feeling sick. He started feeling weak. He started feeling nauseous. He started feeling pain. And he went to his doctor and his doctor rounds the taps and they came back and says, listen, it doesn't look good. I, I need to send you for more tests. And they sent him to, for, you know, from one test to another until they finally came back that this rabbi had, this young rabbi, four children, had uh, a, an advanced stage of lymphoma. And the uh, doctors told him there's, there's only so much that we could do. This story happened in Israel and they called, there's a certain askan, there's certain, there was a local medical referral expert by the name of Rabbi Ferrer. 
And he went, and they called him up. The family called him up and said, listen, you got to help us. Give us a top experts. You got to, they told the situation. There's a young rabbi with four children at home, the young wife. He says, there's something that, that needs to be done. And this Askan, this medical referral expert, went and started making phone calls to get all the top specialists in the, in, you know, in the country. And they went and they started meeting with the top specialists. And one specialist after another said, listen, we're sorry. We don't know what else to tell you. He says, your, your husband has, doesn't have that much left to live. And they gave him a few weeks left to live. And not only that, they went and they said that to go, do another round of chemotherapy or radiation is not going to really help him. It's, it's something that could actually you know, just make, it, make him go through a bout of suffering, and there's no really point of doing that. And this is the news that this young couple just received. And they go and they call Rabbi Ferrer, and they say, listen, says, you took us all to all the you know, specialists. says, can you do us a favor? This is when Rabbi Eliashev was still alive. He says, can you set us an appointment with Rabbi Eliashev? He says, we need to speak to him. So he goes over and he says, listen, it's Friday afternoon. So I understand you just got the news. He says, Rabbi Eliashev doesn't see people Friday. Let me see. Let me make a few phone calls. Let me see if you'll be able to go and, and meet with you guys. 20 minutes later, they're sitting in Rabbi Eliashev's standing room table. And they're explaining the entire situation, what the doctor says, and they, how they went from this doctor and this doctor, and the doctor says they don't know if there's any point to do any more, any more treatment because it seems like there's no more hope. And this is how this Askin Rabbi Fira is going and explaining to Rabbi Eliashev. And Rabbi Eliashev is listening, he's nodding, he's thinking, he's concentrating. Finally, he goes and he says, listen, if the doctor says that there's nothing else that can be done, he says, you know, there's no point to, to follow any more treatment. The husband and wife were sitting present during this meeting, and they were silent. Suddenly the wife spoke up. And she goes over to Rabbi Yashav and says, you know, Rabbi, says, from what you're saying, you're telling me that in a few short weeks, I am going to be a widow and my children are going to be orphans. And I know right now my children are very young and they don't know how to ask questions. But I know when they're going to get older, they're going to ask me a very, very pertinent question that's going to shake me to my core. And that question is going to be, Mommy, did you do everything in your power to save Tati? Did you do everything that you could to save our father? And says the mother, says, what am I supposed to answer them? Says, I'm supposed to answer them that I did everything by giving up? Absolutely not. Says the woman, says the wife, I am not giving up. No matter what, I'm not giving up. Suddenly, Rabbi Lashav, his entire demeanor changed. And he goes, he says, what? If that's the case? He says, right now, it was Friday afternoon. He says, you take the next flight out to America and you go for treatment in America. And he told the, the sick person, which is the rabbi, and the rabbi Fira, the, the Askin, the one that was, that was negotiating between, uh, you know, the, all the, all the doctors, he says, both of you go, it's pikuach nefesh, you go and you fly on Shabbat if you need to. And he took the next flight out, even though it wasn't Shabbat, and they flew to America, and he was entered into Sloan Catering, catering, uh, you know, uh, the medical, you know, the cancer center. And he went through, and they, he was rushed into surgery, and a few short weeks later, he was given a new lease on life. He was in recovery, but he was given a new lease on life. And a few weeks after that, he was flying back to Israel. And when they came back to Israel, you know, they started, you know, there were, when, once everything is like rushing and going through, you can't stop for a second. Be like, wait a minute. When we went to Rabbi Yashif, we went to the greatest rabbi in Israel. We went and we first told him the situation, what happened. He said, there's nothing to do. All of a sudden, within a few first short words, he changed his entire demeanor and he says, now you got to fly to Israel. So why? 
So they went over to Rab Chaim Kanievsky. Rab Chaim Kanievsky right now is the Gadol Hadol. He's the, he's the highest age of the generation. And he is the son-in-law of Rabbi Yashiv. So he went over to Rab Chaim Kanievsky and says, why did your father-in-law all of a sudden change? They told him the story. He says, why did he change all of a sudden from going and saying, there is no hope and that's it. Bibapitachatavad is done. All of a sudden they go and say, no, fly on Shabbat and go and do, do, you know, do treatment for your husband. Says Rab Chaim Kanievsky. He says, when you go, you guys went and you came over to my father-in-law, and you said, according to nature, there's nothing left that we can do. That's what you told him. So he said, you're right. According to nature, there's nothing left that we can do. But all of a sudden, your wife stood up. And your wife said, I am not giving hope. I'm not giving up hope. There is emunah and bitachon, that there's God that can do anything. Says so all of a sudden that she had the power of hope. She had the power of emunah and bitachon. All of a sudden that changed everything. Because the power of emunah and bitachon is able to even change decrees that were decreed for bad. Now that she had that power, now he said, oh, now that I see this, now you're going to go and you're going to go fly on Shabbat to go and get, take care of your medical situation. And they went and they were taking, and Baal Hashem, he was saved. What do we see over here? We see over here the power of emunah and bitachon. The power of emunah and bitachon is not something, okay, fine. Last week we spoke about the concept that you lived your life of worry-free. No, no, this has the power to change what you live and what your destiny is going to be. The power of emunah and bitachon, we don't even begin to understand the, the effect that it has in our lives and our future lives. But you can even take it a step further. And a step further is that not only that emunah and bitachon has an effect on you, but even you don't. If you have a high level of it, it's going to come to you. Listen to this amazing story: the the yeshiva in Panovich. There was a chatan and kala that got engaged. This chatan and kala were broke. They had the parents had no money. And the family has no money. They didn't know where they were going to live. They couldn't set a wedding date until they have a place to live, and they didn't have a place to live, so they couldn't set a wedding date. And what is the chatan doing? He's sitting and he's learning Torah. His friends were more nervous than he. They were like, what are you, you going to do? Where are you going to live? How are you going to get married? What are you going to do? You know, they're going on. He says, what are, he says, God will help. He says, I, you know, I have to worry about this. Everything comes from God. The Rosh Hashiva went, the, the, you know, the head rabbi went and he heard over what, how this person, how this chatan was saying. He says, by the way, if you have a munam b'dachon that you get an apartment, you could have a munam b'dachon that you're going to get a large apartment. Not only a regular dingy, you know, apartment. And you will be able to get a very, very luxurious type of apartment. And the story goes on that this, this little tidbit was eventually came to the, to, you know, to the chazonish. And there was a very wealthy person who actually built the house of the Chazonish, that he built himself a house, a very luxurious house in Tel Aviv. Um, this is before Tel Aviv was as we know today. And he, at the age of about 70, he decided that he's retiring from his business and he's moving to live his, you know, the, his golden years, as they call it, in Israel, in his apartment in Tel Aviv. And he's living there for a few years. Suddenly, you know, the kids get together, they call him up and they say, listen, dad, we want you home. We want you back in America. So he decides that he's going to move back to America. So he goes over to the Chazonish, and he says, he's one of the Chazonish supporters, he says, listen, he says, I'm going back to America, I don't need to rent this out. He says, I want to give it to somebody who needs it. Do you know any couple, anybody that needs an apartment, then I have an apartment for them. So the Chazonish just heard this, you know, this, this story, he says, oh, I have a perfect you know, couple for you, a couple that's about to get married, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're learning in Panovich. The, the Chatan is learning in Panovich. So he says, perfect. He goes over to Panovich, this wealthy man. And he goes and he meets over with the Panovich Rosh Hashiva. And he says, he didn't tell him what, what the Chazanish says. He says, by the way, I have an apartment. Do you know anybody that would need an apartment out in uh, Tel Aviv? So the Panovich Rosh Hashiva says, oh, I have a perfect student. 
And he tells him the same exact student that the Chazanish said. When this wealthy man heard that there's two gdole adal, two big righteous tzaddikim that went and they referred the same person, the same, the same Talmid Chacham, the same student, he said, you know what? It's for this, it's for this student. And he goes and he meets with the student and says, gives him the keys, says, this apartment is for you in Tel Aviv. You can utilize it until when you need it, rent free. Not only rent free, he also paid for the utilities as well. And this student went, and he lived in this luxurious apartment for a few years until he finished, you know, learning. And he went and became a rabbi. When he became a rabbi, he ended up, you know, being able to support himself and he ended up moving, moving out over here. Here we see what? Here you see something so amazing. That here you have somebody who had a munabitachon. He didn't have to go and search Craigslist. He didn't have to go and search the Jewish press, um, classified, thank you. He didn't have to search any apartments. He didn't have to call any brokers. Yeah, everything's from God. And he goes and he sits and he learns Torah. And what happened? Somebody came knocking on his door. He says, hey, do you need an apartment? Here's an apartment. But not just any apartment. A luxurious apartment. One made for a multimillionaire. They gave him that, you know, that apartment. There's another story with a very similar outcome. That there was once a wealthy, uh, actually, opposite of wealthy, a very, very poor, poor, uh, you know, rabbi. You're talking about poor level that his table was two tree stumps and a block of uh, you know wood that was sitting on there. His his family slept on mats on the floor. Had mamash no money. What did he do all day? Learning to walk day and night. And the family respected and they said, "This is the way that the, you know the father wants to live. This is the way that the family wants to live. They want to live the way of 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 Torah and kedusha." And they were extremely happy. But as the, the kids grew older, it says it was time for the daughter to get married. And the wife goes over to the husband and says, "Listen, he says you know we've been scrapping by barely until now." But now we have a daughter that's ready for the Shidduchim. says, we need to present a dowry. We need to go and give her something you know, to, to get married with. We don't have anything to give. He says, maybe get a job, maybe do something. And the wife was conversing with the husband what they should do. And suddenly the wife had an idea. He says, you have a wealthy cousin. Why don't you go to the cousin? Maybe he'll help you out. So the husband was thinking about it. He says, you know what? That's a good idea. And he goes and he takes his belongings, meager belongings, packs it up, takes his coat, and he goes out to leave out of his front door. As he leaves out of his front door, he stops by the mezuzah and he gives it a kiss. And as he's sitting over there, he's sitting in a trance in front of the mezuzah. He's sitting there, and the entire family is just watching their father leave. You know, the father's going for the first time out to, you know, to the world. They're just watching him. And he's sitting in front of the mezuzah, and he's holding the mezuzah, and two minutes go by. And by the way, when, when things are a little bit awkward, every second feels like a year. Five minutes go by, ten minutes go by, fifteen minutes go by, he's still sitting over there. Finally, he gets out of his trance, he takes the hand off the mezuzah, gives it a kiss, and he closes the door, takes off his coat, goes back to sit by his gemara, and opens up like nothing happened. His entire family is looking at him like, what just happened? Like, what's going on over here? And the wife goes and says, what's going on? Did, did you forget you were going the other way? Like, it's, you're going that way. And the rabbi goes and explains, says, listen, he says, I went up, and I was thinking, you know, the Gemara says that you're supposed to go and pray God before you go out to, a, to a journey. And I was thinking, of like, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my wealthy cousin. Maybe he'll help me. Maybe he won't help me. 50-50 chance. He says, I'm going to risk all my learning to offer. 50-50 chance. Here I'm going. I'm kissing the Muslim. I have a father in heaven who is so wealthy. He has everything. He says, why do I have to go and travel so far out to go and maybe for a 50-50 chance get some money for my daughter's wedding? He says, I have my father in heaven. I go, I ask my father in heaven, can you please help me out? My father in heaven for sure will help me out. And he goes and he continues learning to him. A short while later, there is a knock on his door. And there's a nobleman, a parts, goes, comes in. And he says, listen, I'm going and I'm traveling. I have a, you know, a few valuables that are very, very valuable. And he says... I don't want to leave it in my house. I know it will get stolen. 
I want to give it in your... You guard it. You take care of it. And I'll pay you for it. And he paid him handsomely for him guarding it. He says, if anything, God forbid, happens to me, it's yours to keep all these valuables. He pays him to guard his valuables, and he travels on. A short while later, word gets back that the, this, this wealthy nobleman, he was, you know, they were, he was attacked by a bunch of bandits against, uh, you know, on the road, and they murdered him. And they took everything that he had on him. And now this, this tzaddik, this tzaddik, this now not only he got the money for watching the, you know, the items, now he also got all those valuable items. Here we see what? That you have here someone who has such a munah that God will take care of me. And what? God took care of him. He did what he was supposed to do. He sat and he learned to all what happened. God came. He didn't have to go travel to his cousin. God, someone came knocking on his door and says, here, I got something for you. Here's your panasa. Here's what you need to have. Says the Noam Elimelech. Says the trust that we have. This is a this is the channel. This is the conduit for what for the blessing of abundance to come from above. And if somebody goes and this trust is broken, it's stopped. It's contravened. It's 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 blocked. All of a sudden, the flow from abundance stops. Meaning that if you want to get bracha from Shemaim, if you want to get a blessing from up above, what is the conduit of blessing? That is emunah bitachon. That is the trust that you have that everything comes from Hakadosh Baruch and he quotes the Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 32, verse 10. Somebody who trusts in God is surrounded by kindness. There's so much benefit that happens with trust. Says the Maharal. Look at the power that this has. Unbelievable. In the Siva Salam. And he goes and says, you want to hear how great the power, the midah of bitachon is? Is it has the ability to change something that was destined for bad to destined to good. And he quotes the Gemara in Bachot, page 60b. <laughs> And this is a very famous Gemara when you speak about Emunah B'tachon. It's a Gemara about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was traveling and he was carrying with him a donkey. He was sitting on a donkey. He wasn't carrying with it. He was carrying with him a rooster and a candle and he was sitting, riding on a donkey. And he came over to this town and he says, do you have space for me to rent the room? And he said, no, we don't have any space. And he went from inn to inn to hotel to motel to whatever it was. Everybody, there was no room. Everybody was booked. So he had nothing else to do. He went to the forest and he set up camp you know, in the forest. And why did he have all things? The donkey was there that would be able to go and um, would be able to, uh, you know, travel on. Then he had the rooster that would be able to wake him up in the morning. And then he had the candles that he would be able to learn at night. So the candle is lit, he's learning at light, and suddenly a big wind comes and blows out the candle. What is Rabbi Akiva said? And by the way, he wasn't, you know, scribbling in a dear diary of like what's going on. He was learning Torah. And he says, oh, if God took out the candle, everything that God does, God does from the best. He says, oh. And he goes, and he continues. And then suddenly, an animal comes out and devours his rooster, his alarm clock. What did it, what did, why did he need an alarm clock? Because he didn't want to sleep late? Because he had a point. No, he wanted to go in and pray in the early morning. What did he say? Everything that God does, God does for the best. Then another animal came and devoured his donkey. Again, he said, Everything that God does, God does for the best. And in the morning, he wakes up. He goes into town. He sees that there were a bunch of, a group of robbers that went into this town and they, they, they plundered this entire town. They went from place to place to, to house to house and they stole everything, everything valuable that they had and they murdered everybody in town. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Kiva sees, oh, look at this. Now the fact that God took, that burned out my candle with the wind, that was really for my best. Because if I would have had a candle, the robbers would have came to town at night. They would have seen a candle burning in the, in the forest. They would have said, aha, you see over here, there's somebody over there. They went away to murder him. If he would still have had his rooster, the rooster would have made noise. If the rooster had made him noise, so was the donkey. So all of a sudden, every, now he sees that everything that happened was really for the best. Says the Maharal, 
something fantastic. He says, really? On Rabbi Akiva, there was a judgment for death. Rabbi Akiva was supposed to die that night. Rabbi Akiva was destined to die that night. But because of the strong emunah and bitachon that he had, that had, that would have had the ability to go and change the decree from bad to good. That would have the, given the ability to go and, and, and revoke that decree. And then Maral goes and explains in a fascinating fashion how you have the, the donkey, the rooster, and the candle, they correspond to the three aspects of the, of the soul that's in the body. You have the nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama that is in the body. And each one corresponds one to the body, one to the intellect, one to, you know, one to the, one to the emotions. You have over here, the um, the concept that everything was taken, and every time he was taken, it was another test. And because he said because he said that everything that is for the best, that was able to revoke the judgment that he had against him. And the Masilat Yisraelim goes and says this as well that if someone's going through a hard time, and someone's going through a difficult time in their life, and he has a munah and he acknowledges that this is all from God, this in itself is a large kapara, it's a large atonement that. It doesn't need all the bad to happen because of that. That is the power of having a munah and bitachon. The Baal Shem goes, and he says also, that all evil decrees can be transformed to good ones through a munah and bitachon. And there's something fascinating that it said about the Baal Shem The Baal Shem was known, if you hear like a story that's miraculous, that he's like flying with his donkeys in the air, you know, like it sounds like Santa Claus like story, like it's, the Baal Shem is like known as like all the crazy stories. All the crazy stories, the Havdil, Aleph Adav. So I shouldn't even say, you know, the Baal Shem Tov and Santa Claus in the same sentence. But uh, just so you could understand, you know, the, the concept of what the, the miracles, the, the Baal Shem Tov, you know, the stories the Baal Shem Tov goes, you know, was, was told about him. They say about the Baal Shem Tov, you know how he was able to get all these miracles? People think Kabbalah, he was able to have such a... It's nothing to do with Kabbalah. The Baal Shem Tov was able to reach all the levels of, that he reached and all the miracles that he was able to do, utilizing his Munah. It was the power of Emunah, and he instilled this upon his students as well. That is the power of causing miracles, the power of having Emunah and Bitachon. There is a Gemara in Shabbat, page 31, that says like this, that a person, when a person gets up to heaven, they're going to ask him a few questions. One of the questions that they're going to ask him, Tzipita Yeshua. Did you anticipate salvation? Meaning, did you realize, did you think did you, that God is going to save you? Yeshua Tashem Kelefayim. The ability of God is saving you is in a blink of an eye. A person can be in the worst situation and God could save you in the blink of an eye. You're in the most, you know, you're in a depressed situation and God could change everything. Did you anticipate that? Did you anticipate God saving you from your situation? The Basil Levy goes and he says that it's not enough to believe that it's going to happen. We have to anticipate it. Meaning that you have to, re- not only, there's a difference of believing and anticipating. Anticipating is, is like, okay, when am I cashing my check? No, like, I hope that I'm going to win. No, when am I cashing it? And what am I making it out to, to the charity? Whatever it is. Okay, so, you know, Rabbi David Asher goes and brings down a, a, a crazy story by, that happened to Rabbi Shal Brug, that he had a son, and at age 14 was diagnosed with uh, the uh, with multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is a degenerative disease that affects your muscular abilities to the fact that after a certain point, even the person can't breathe by themselves. That's the that's the unfortunately the power that it, you know that it has. And this rabbi went with his son to Mellon Center of for multiple sclerosis in in Cleveland. And his son <laughs> asked the rabbi one of the most difficult questions that a child could ask a parent. He says, does, Daddy, does, that, does this mean that I'm going to die young? And the father says, you know, my whole life, I've been working in Abidahon, and everything comes from God. And even though whatever, if, if there's treatment, we have to do our shadu to do the treatment. But if there's no treatment, then we know that everything is in God's hand. And as they're sitting in the waiting room, they're sitting with a bunch of 
about 40 other patients that have multiple sclerosis, this same disease, and everybody's at a different stage. When the doctor went over to, uh, you know, to speak to this rabbi and his son, he goes and he says, you see you know, this person, and he, and he pointed to somebody in, a, in an advanced stage of multiple sclerosis, and says, this is what you should anticipate for your son. And what did the rabbi say, the woman doctor, what did the rabbi say? The rabbi says, don't listen to her. It was blurted it out. And all of a sudden, the woman doctor's like, excuse me? Like, what did you just say? You know, like, she's like, with all her medical knowledge, says, you, this is how you're going to be. And he's like, just shut up. Don't listen to her. And he didn't make those noises. But he said, don't listen to her. And she was like, what are you? He's like, um, hello? You know, like, 55 years of medical experience. You know, whatever it was. You know, like, she, you know, she's been going through. She says, what do you mean? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, look. He's like, in your books, according to your medical expertise, you're right. There's nothing else to do. He says, but I go according to somebody who doesn't have your books. And that is God. And God has his own book. And according to God, anything can happen. And he says, I can prove it to you. You know, there's stories that happen in my life that I can prove it to you. And he tells this doctor a story that happened to his child. When his child was three years old, he had a daughter that was three years old that was in a bath. And one of the other children were watching this girl in a bath. And the child that was watching them accidentally or on purpose, whatever, turned off the cold water, but left up only the hot water. And by the time that the mother ran in, says the entire three-year-old girl's body was completely scalded, was completely peeling, it was, you know, it was screeching in pain. And they rushed her into the hospital. They rushed her to the, to the hospital in uh, Cleveland, I believe. And they, they rushed in over there, and the rabbi goes over to the, the doctor and says, can I see my daughter? They, they wouldn't let him see them. And they said, no, I'm sorry, you can't see her. She's hysterical right now. And she said, you know, the doctor said, to be honest, there's only 5 to 15% chance that she's going to survive to the night. She was with severe burns. And the, the rabbi goes and says, listen, can you, please, I want to see my daughter. I want to see my daughter. And they let him in to this room where you, he surrounded, this little girl is surrounded by 11 doctors. She's screeching and screaming on top of her lungs. And they're trying to calm her down so that he'll be able to go and, and give them her some treatment. And nothing is stopping. And finally, the, the father goes over to the daughter and her name was Devora. And she says, you know, he keeps on saying her name, Devora, Devora. She says, Tati is here. Daddy is here. She says, look into my eyes. Look into my eyes. And it took a few few seconds, but suddenly the, the three-year-old looks into her father's eyes. And the father is like calming her down. She says, relax. Everything is going to be okay. And because of that, the doctors were able to go and, and treat her. Miraculously, she survived that night. And they told the rabbi says that she's going to need about a year of hospitalization with grafts throughout, skin grafts throughout her entire body. And the, doctor, the rabbi says to the doctor, thank you for telling me, now I know what to pray for. And this is what he started praying for. And the rabbi says, three and a half weeks later, my daughter and I left the hospital with only one skin graft on the bottom of her foot. And he, she, he goes and says, and the, the head of the burn unit, burn unit over there by the name of Dr. Bur- Bob Birding comes over to me and he says, I've never been so humble in my life. He says, I've never seen this in my entire life of a girl going from where she went to to, to where she is right now. And this is the rabbi telling over this story to this head of the, of the multiple sclerosis, uh, you know, in the hospital. And the story goes on that the way that you're able to tell the, the, the severity of the prognosis and the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis is depending on how many white spots are on the spine. And when this teenager got tested and he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, he had six white spots on his spine. Six years go by, he keeps on getting tested, there is still only six white spots on his spine. When the story was written, this young man was married with children. 
without dealing with anything. This is the power of emunah and bitachon. This is the power that you have. Obviously, they were praying and they were, you know, obviously getting close to God. But this is the power that you have with emunah and bitachon. Many people go and they think in their life, there will be so much I would be able to accomplish if I had some certain people backing me, if I had a certain rabbis backing me up, if I had multi-billionaires backing me up, I'll be able to accomplish so much in life. If we only realize that we have God backing us every step in our way in our life. There's a story brought down in the Gemara in Tani, page 19b. There's a story by, by Nakedimon Ben-Goyon that this is during the, the time of Sukkot and people came, they were making their way toward the Bet HaMikdash and there was a drought that year, there was no rain and... Nakdimon ben Goyon goes over, he was a very wealthy individual, very righteous wealthy individual, and he goes over to a very rich Roman nobleman that was living also in Alat Yisrael. And this rich nobleman had 12 gigantic cisterns of pure, clean water. He says that all these Jews are coming to Yerushalayim, they're going to need water to drink. So he goes over to this rich nobleman and he says, Let, give, lend me your, your, your 12 pitchers of water. He says, when you lend me these 12 pitchers of water, I'm going to be able to feed the Jewish people. And he says, and I'll fill it up by a certain date. And if I don't fill it up by a certain date, I will give you 12 talents of silver for each cistern, which is like an exorbitant amount of money. And the person, the person, this nobleman says, that's a crazy deal. He says, fine. No problem. Done. And he goes and he gives them these 12 cisterns of water. And the entire Jewish people go and they drink the water. They're forever grateful. They're having an amazing, you know, amazing time. They're, 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 they're grateful to Nakhdimah they're grateful to God. And the time goes by, they leave, and the payday is up. Where he's supposed to fill up the cisterns of waters. And so far it didn't rain, there was still a drought, and nothing was happening. So this rich Roman nobleman sends a message to Nakhdimon, and he says, listen, he says, you got to pay up, where's the money? And Nakhdimon says, wait a minute, it's the last day. He says, the day isn't over, I still have time. And the rich nobleman says, wait a minute, he says, for, for, for a year it hasn't rained. He says, now you think it's going to rain? He says, pay up. He says, no, I have to the end of the day. He, so he goes and he leaves. And Midday, there's another message that goes from the Roman nobleman to this, to, to, you know, to Nakhdimon. And Nakhdimon says, eh, it's half day, I still have time. And it goes a third time, closer to the end of the day, he says, I still have time. Now, Nakhdimon goes over to the Beta Mikdash. And he goes and he starts praying to God. And what does he pray to God? He says, I didn't make this deal with the Roman for my personal honor. I acted solely for your honor. And in the merit of that, please give us rain, give us the ability to fill the cistern so I don't have to pay. And suddenly, there was big dark clouds that came over Yoshlein. And it started a torrential downpour. That not only that his cisterns was, was flowing with water, but it was overflowing with water. But this Roman nobleman went and sent over another message to, this, to Nakhdimon. And he says, wait, we said today. He says, look at, the, look at the sky, it's dark. He says, you still owe me money. So Nakhdimon went back into the Beit HaMikdash and he started praying to God. He says, God, I did it for your honor. And what happened? The clouds separated and, and all of a sudden they saw that the sun is still shining. And the sun is still shining. Now what did Nakhdimon go? And Nakhdimon says, wait a minute, you got more water than I gave you. Pay it back. He says, now you owe me money. So what says the altar of Nevada? What do you learn from this? He says that, where did Nakhdimon have this power to go and stop the, you know, all of a sudden make it rain? Or where did he get it from? Says the altar of Nevada, this came from the power of his bitachon. The power that he had, that God has the ability to do everything. And how much he was, he was so invested in this that he was willing to, to, to give so much money because he knew that this was going to happen. So now that the question is asked, that if he was so confident that this was going to happen, then how come he waited until the final last minute to go into the Bet HaMikdash to pray? He should have prayed earlier. Or he shouldn't have prayed at all. Either way. So it says the Alta Nevadic that really, he knew that it's all in merit of his bitachon. But then, the, then he started thinking, he says, wait a minute. He says, this, this nobleman came to me three times. He says, maybe the reason why it's not raining right now, the reason why this water is not being filled is why? Is because I'm confident in my bitachon. Really, I think, oh, in merit of my bitachon, this is going to rain. 
So that's why he goes over to the Bet Amikdash and he started praying that one, it's not in my merit. That's what specifically he said, not my merit I did this for you, I did it for your merit, Akadosh Bahu. And because of that, suddenly he had that prayer. He changed his mindset all of a sudden, this was a torrential downpour and that came down. This is the power that not only he was able to procure blessing of, of, of rain, but he also worry free. He wasn't, he wasn't even worried about this. I'll finish off with my final story that there was a Tamit Chacham in Switzerland that was always learning to ah, didn't work, constantly learning to ah, but he kept on having children one after another. And as he had children, the, the expenses started to tighten. And people started thinking, okay, you have another child, you not have a child. So people, but he was like, we have to do what we need to do. And we're not bitachon. Everything has to do. He had his 13th child and his wife was like, maybe you need to work, maybe you need that. They were conversing with it. He ended up staying and learning to ah. And they didn't know how they were support 13 children while he was sitting and learning to ah. Suddenly he gets a envelope, a letter in the mail from a lawyer's office, you know, telling him he has to come to court. When everybody, anybody gets something that you have to come to court, they're like, oh my gosh, I have to come to court, what's it going to mean? Like, what did I do? Did I drive? You know, like, so I think he comes to court and they're reading the will of a certain Mr. John P. Klabardi, if I'm pronouncing his name right. And he's like, what does it have to do with me, this will? He couldn't understand it. And... He reads the will, and he's, this Mr. Klabardi, he did not have any children. And he, he was a very wealthy individual, and he wanted to give a certain amount of his fortune to the largest family in Switzerland. And because he had 13 children, the 13th child, that made him the largest family in Switzerland, and he was given an inheritance of a few million dollars. So here you see somebody that goes and just follows what they need to do according to Emunah and Bitachon, according to God, God will take care of you. That is the power of Emunah and Bitachon. Even the things that we don't realize, that we don't that we think is bad for us, has the power to have tremendous good. There was, I know I said, a really final story, really. Um, there was a person in Israel that was bitten by a poisonous snake. And he was treated by a specialist in Ramat Gan. And the doctor comes out afterwards, and he tells him, I did not believe in God until now. He said, this poisonous snake, he says, he injected poison into you, and because of that poison, that killed, this person had cancer. That poison killed the cancer in your kidneys. He says, so then he says, you know, do we know what's good for us? Sometimes we see what bad, sometimes we see, we don't know nothing. What we are required to do is have a munah and bitachon, that everything that happens in our life is because of God, and everything that happens is the power of God. And there's only one thing that you need to do, and that is right here. and <laughs> There is nothing else other than God. The only thing that you have to worry about, the biggest school out that you could have anything in your life is realizing that everything, everything that you want is in your palm of your hands if you have the emunah bitachon of ein od milvadon. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can hurt you if you have the emunah bitachon of ein od milvadon. Any questions? Yes. <laughs> um, I have a few, but I'll start with isn't there a, a concept of not relying on innate? Yes, and I, that's a great question. Dude, can, can we rely on a miracle? And the answer is no, we're not supposed to rely on a miracle. Oh, but then how are you going to rely on this? When you rely on a munam bitachon, that's not relying on a miracle. That's, re, that's the merit of you relying on a munam bitachon gives you the power to have that miracle. And Bizat Hashem, I want to speak about this concept. So I want to speak about it more in depth. In the coming classes, but the merit of having a is obviously you need to do your ishtadlut. And we're going to speak about ishtadlut. You have to do what your effort that you need to do in this world. 
But after a certain point, it's all in God's hands. And once you put it in God's hands, that's no more, no longer a miracle because just like God can do anything natural, God can do anything miraculous. God, just like the, the vinegar, just like the oil lights, so do the vinegar lights. So there's everything that happens only in God's hand. But it's actually a question we'll speak about more in depth because I'll be in the future classes. Balance. Very good. We'll speak about that. Bizal Hashem also in Ishtadlut, first effort. What's the practical way to get it this next class? Well, how to work on it? We're going to Bizal Hashem. It's not the last class. We're still, this is still in the introduction. We have a few more classes just on the introduction of Emunah. Bizal Hashem, once we finish the introduction of Emunah, then we can figure out how to work on Emunah. Good? Good. Beautiful. Amazing. Chazak You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.